It's Christmas that brings the whole Peanuts gang singing together around Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. It's magic. And yet I think the older we get and the more Christmases we see go by, the more we start to realize maybe that Christmas magic isn't everything it was cracked up to be. Sorry to spoil it for those who are still clinging desperately. But I think that's why we lean so hard into nostalgia, isn't it? I don't know what your Christmas traditions are. At our house, decorating the Christmas tree is a big deal. That's, that's the pinnacle of nostalgia right there. Uh, we don't have a beautiful Christmas tree. We have a memory-filled Christmas tree. Uh, it has ornaments from my first Christmas as an infant, from my wife's first Christmas. It has numerous creations from our kids, um, souvenir ornaments from every vacation we've ever been on, complete with a bikini-clad starfish and a lobster Santa Claus. It's ridiculous, but it's memories. It's all about the memories. And of course, that's why when the tree is put up and the, the Christmas ornament boxes come out with the familiar smell and the newspaper packing, uh, I'm going to slide over to the stereo and, and turn on Boney M's Christmas album um, to my shame and to my children's loud complaining. Uh, not because it's the most amazing musically, not because it's the most solid theologically. You're, you're shocked, I know. Um, because that's what played when I was a kid, when we decorated the Christmas tree. We love to, to lean into those memories, that nostalgia. It's such a warm and welcome place to be because memories have a way of changing reality, right? The, the good old days, they're, they're always a lot better now as we remember them than they actually were when we lived them. The real world is a hard place. It's a place of conflict and pain and struggle and trial. It's something we just don't want to face. We don't have to deal with that, certainly not at, at Christmas time. And so sinking into those carefully sanitized memories, we're able to make believe that, that maybe life was at one point that perfect and, and kind of stir up this hope that maybe one day again there will be that kind of joy. Our hearts long for that. We were created for that. And if we're honest, we just can't find it in this world. It's why we create these memories to fill that void. But I think if we're honest, we know that's a, that's a false hope. We're, we're lying to ourselves. But, but what if there is a way to fill that void? Something solid that you could really lay hold of that, that satisfied that longing for rest, for peace, for joy and serenity and calm. We talked last week about Simeon waiting in the temple. He'd been promised he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so there he waited eagerly anticipating the coming of the Christ. And it's this same hope, this same longing for peace, this insatiable desire that lives in us that was right at the forefront of his mind and his heart as he waited for this long-expected Jesus. We talked about the promise of the Messiah that he was hoping for, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, God promising 
That he would send an offspring of the woman, a man born of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would strike his heel. It was ultimate victory over sin and death. And God reaffirmed that promise through the ages to to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to to Moses and through the law and the sacrificial system. And and through all of that, God was not only reaffirming his promises, but he's he's unveiling a little more. This is what my rescuer is going to look like. This is how I'm going to save. So as you're reading through the Old Testament, you're watching that God unfolding this story. He's saying it's going to be like an ark sheltering my people from my wrath. It's going to be like a a father giving up his son. It's going to be like a sacrifice killed on the altar in the place of the sinner. As this epic story progresses through history, it comes to David, the shepherd made king. Not a perfect king by any means, but he's called a man after God's own heart. And and in 2 Samuel 7, he's told through the prophet Nathan, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you. There's that key word again, that, that offspring who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name and I will establish my throne of his kingdom forever. His promised offspring. He's coming, David. He's coming of your line. He's going to be a a king. He's going to rule. And, And not only is he going to rule, he will rule forever. No doubt the anticipation of Israel was at its peak again the, the, the offspring is coming. The rescuer is coming. And Solomon, David's throne, David's son took the throne and, and he did fulfill a lot of the pieces of this prophecy. In some ways, he built the temple. He was the wisest man ever to live. But as years went on, he began to take numerous wives and they led his heart astray after other gods. And eventually, like so many hopefuls before him, he too died. Not the rescuer. Not the one. A glimmer again of what he might be like in some ways, but not him. Even worse, after his death, the kingdom of Israel was torn in two. The wicked Jeroboam ruled over the ten northern tribes called Israel. And David's line through Solomon and his son Rehoboam ruled in the southern tribes called Judah. Israel's kings were predominantly evil, and that nation moved quickly into idolatry and disaster. Um, The kingdom of Judah was a little bit better. They held out a little bit longer in the line of David, but now we're 200 years and 12 kings later, uh, still waiting for that offspring in the line of David. And Judah finds themselves under King Ahaz. Ahaz was the most wicked king they had seen yet. He set up altars around and sacrificed to pagan gods. And he even gave up his own son on the glowing red hands of the statue of Molech as a sacrifice, a child sacrifice. The 12 tribes of Israel should have been united as one, eagerly awaiting this king that would come and and bring them joy and peace. But instead, the, the northern tribes of Israel joined with Syria and began to wage war against Judah. Ahaz in Judah emptied all the silver and the gold out of the temple 
looted his own temple to pay the king of Assyria, not Syria, Assyria, uh, to fight with them against Syria and Israel. It was a disaster. Children getting swept up into this army fighting against their cousins. It was war. It was chaos. It was wickedness and evil everywhere. How is God going to work in this mess? What is God possibly going to do? How does the Messiah come out of this? It is that context into which Isaiah was sent as a prophet. The book begins with the Lord declaring judgment, not only on Syria and Assyria and Israel, but also on Judah. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 25. says, Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets for all his anger was not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Isaiah chapter 6 is Isaiah's iconic vision of the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died high and lifted up. And it's his call to, to prophesy, but he's told in the middle of that that his prophecies will not be heard. They won't listen. It won't change the direction of this nation. Judah will not listen to your warnings. And, and Isaiah says in verse 11, How long, O Lord, how long? And the Lord answers this way, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and a house without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is a stump. It was dark. This is as low as it gets. You think they were weary of this pain-filled life. You think they were tired of the suffering, desperately longing for some kind of peace. And that last phrase, the, the holy seed, that, that's the same word from Genesis 3.15. It's the offspring. Cut down. It's a stump. Tree cut down and burned into the ground. And yet it's into that darkness, into that suffering, that God once again reaffirms his promise. The rescuer is coming. Isaiah 11, God pulls back that curtain just a, just a little more show what kind of king this would be and, and what kind of kingdom it is that he will bring. And the promise is there will be peace. There will be peace. There will be that kind of perfect rest that your heart so desperately longs for. It's coming. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 11. I want you to see God's promises for yourself. If you don't have a Bible on you, go ahead and Slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab one for you. But Isaiah chapter 11, look at verses 1 to 9. Let me read them for us. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from its, his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. With righteousness he will judge the poor 
and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. The little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 1 is that light. It's that hope breaking into the darkness. Yes, the line of David is almost completely destroyed. Yes, the people of God have been brought low like a tree cut down and burned. But out of that stump, God will still be faithful. He will still grow his offspring. A branch will come forth. The roots, uh, out, out of the root of David, there will spring up fruit. The king is still coming. And the message is this. First, trust this king. Trust this king. Look at how Isaiah describes this, this king. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. God's Holy Spirit. Not, not temporarily like he had been given to Saul and then taken away, but but resting on him in a long-term, permanent sense. And in that, there's wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, so very different from any king they had experienced. Verse 3, not only would he know the right things, but he would love the right things. His delight would be in the fear of the Lord. Of course, with all of that wisdom and knowledge and understanding and counsel, uh, he will be the perfect judge. Look at this. He will not judge by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, which means he's not judging by the externals. 1 Samuel 16 says, Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 4 gets really to the crux of this section. There are two different groups of people here. On one hand, we have the poor and the meek, and on the other hand, the wicked. And the Lord will judge both of them, but he will judge them very differently. The poor and the meek, the downtrodden, the hurting, the humble and needy. It says that he will bring righteousness and equity. He will fight for them. He will bring fairness and goodness. But the wicked, he will kill. This king is good. He's a, he's a good judge And as a good judge, he he will not tolerate evil, none of it. He will not overlook that which offends God because he respects God. He has a fear of the Lord. And so in the strongest terms, it says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. It's not a Jesus we typically talk about, is it? The rod of his mouth striking the earth, it's a reference to his words. Jesus spoke words that judged the earth, divided people. It separated those who would trust in him from those who would reject him. It's the gospel. It's that call to to humble repentance. Give up. Give up on your delusion of of self-worthiness 
Accept your need for a Savior, your need for salvation by grace and grace alone, totally undeserved, apart from anything you could do. To sum that message is what Paul calls the, the aroma of death. They hate it. They hate it. I will not lay down my rights. I will not serve anyone else. I will not admit guilt and sin and my need for a Savior. I demand to stand in my own righteousness. I'm a good person. And they're the ones, ironically, that Scripture calls wicked. They're the ones who will be killed by the breath of his lips. The judgment is pictured again in terrifying detail through Revelation 19. Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the killing of the wicked that Isaiah is talking about here. It begs the question then, what about the poor? Why did they get favor? The poor are not without sin, are they? Are they not wicked like the righteous? Psalm 14, David himself said, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become Corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And so among the poor people, there are wicked people as well. So why are the poor and the wicked standing in contrast here to one another? Well, Isaiah is not talking about those who are physically poor, not not necessarily. Certainly there's overlap with those who have little money. Um, The kings, the the rich in that day would abuse the poor, would take advantage of the poor, walk over them. Um, They couldn't get justice in the courts because they were of no value in society. They didn't matter. And they certainly couldn't keep up with the bribes from the rich. And so if you were poor, your chance of getting justice was low. Jesus says he will judge fairly. He will, he will not show favoritism to the rich and the influential. But Jesus also helps us understand this a little more. He, he unpacks this passage in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 verse 2, it says, And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not about physical poverty. It's not about a lack of money. It's about being poor in spirit. That's why the the poor and the meek are side by side here. They go together. It's it's those who are willing to recognize their spiritual need, their their desperation. It's just like when Jesus said, "I, I I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. The healthy have no need of a doctor. Well, they were all in desperate need, but only some saw their need. He's speaking now to those who say, I know that I deserve to be destroyed among the wicked. But you promised to bring righteousness and equity and, and, and come 
to those who come to you broken and desperate. What a good king. What an unheard of thing uh, among the kings of Israel and Judah and certainly the nations around them. No king was like this king. This is the kind of king that Jesus is, and, and he's so often misrepresented, especially at Christmas time. This is not baby Jesus come to give people warm, fuzzy feelings. He came to be king. He came to rule in power. And he's not the king who simply accepts everyone as they are, who just says to people, as long as you do your best, you just, just go ahead and sin all the more and, and I'll forgive you. We just all need to be friends. Everyone just needs to get along and I'll accept everyone equally in the end. Now he will kill the wicked. Look at Revelation again maybe this week. He will come with a robe drenched in blood, wielding a sword. He will bring vengeance and wrath. Make no mistake, this King Jesus is terrifying. On the other hand, he's also not the king who demands service and, protect, and uh, perfection and performance. He's not the king who says, do this and do this and do this and don't do that and don't do that. And if you keep all of these rules, then I'll accept you. If you, if you prove you're good enough, then I will accept you. No. No, he's the king who, who rules with an iron fist over the proud and the arrogant. But he is absolutely gentle and welcoming to those who are humble who come to him saying, I have done wrong. I deserve your wrath. Can you forgive me? To them, he says, come to me all who labor and heavy burden and I will give you rest. All he requires is humility. To be poor of spirit and meek, nothing else. Do you know him that way? So many people claim to know Jesus claimed to be Christians. But if you really drill down on what they mean by that, on who this Jesus is that they're talking about, they get Jesus totally wrong. Their ultimate hope is not in his kindness, in his mercy and grace towards sinners. Their ultimate hope is that he'll just overlook my sin. It just doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. Their ultimate hope is that maybe I've done enough. I think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Their hope is in their own goodness. They're not poor in spirit. They're not broken over sin and rejoicing in His grace toward me, a sinner. Do you know Him that way? He's a good King. Trust this King. Come to Him empty-handed and humble. And then secondly, through Isaiah, the Lord says, rest in this kingdom. Trust in this king and then rest in this kingdom. After showing what kind of rescuer he would send, he goes on to show just what kind of kingdom he would bring in. That's really the true test of a king, isn't it? The, the peace of the kingdom, the joy of the people. And so look again at, at verses 6 to 9. He says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, for they shall not hurt or destroy in all my mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now we talked about this desire that we have in us for peace. The video that we watched earlier set that up so nicely, how it just continues to fall short. And we're always looking for that next thing. But this is over the top. Is he serious? This sounds like some kind of fairy tale. The wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the young goat, the lion and the fattened calf all laying down together, nestled in the grass. This is like something that was pitched to Disney in the 1950s and they said, it's too soft. No, go with the girl that sings to the birds and the mice and marries the prince. This is not realistic. It's too far. And you're right, it's, it's not realistic. It's absolutely idealistic. It's the picture-perfect, over-the-top piece. It's tempting to think that he's speaking only metaphorically. He's using animals as images to represent some other reality. I don't think that's the case. Now, the scientific mind would argue uh, it's illogical that a lion would feed on grass. His, his metabolism and digestive system is not made for that. His whole body is structured to attack and kill and eat other animals. Um, Need I point out that same scientific mind would tell us that that lion came from a fish. I think this is a little more believable. Yeah, God would need to reset some of their internal realities. But actually Genesis 1.30 tells us that, that at one point, originally, every beast of the earth and bird of the heavens ate green plants for food. It's going back to the way it was meant to be. I don't think that's a problem for God. And interestingly, I think the mechanics of it are not the most difficult part. I don't know what your experience is with, with wild animals. Um, when I was young, uh, friends of ours caught a weasel. Biggest weasel we'd ever seen. Just muscular and huge for, for a weasel. And, and we put him in this cage. We called him Samson. And, and I think for about two years, they tried to, to tame this weasel, to train him. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. He was wild till the day he finally escaped. He, you, you couldn't hold him. You couldn't pet him. You couldn't open the door of that cage. Another neighbor of ours, I, I grew up in the boonies. This is just the way it went. Uh, had, had a dog, half dog, half wolf. And uh, even bred with a husky. So he's on one hand, he's got like a thousand years of domestication working for him. But even with that... Um, you could train him. He obeyed when he, when he wanted to. Uh, if you walked near his food dish, he would look you in the eye in a way that you would back off. But they couldn't keep him from taking down deer and dragging them back into the yard. They had to put him down. You, you can't get the wildness out of these wild animals. This king is not just changing external realities of how these animals interact with one another, but, but the very DNA, the essence, the, the instincts and the impulses from the inside. And though I do think this is talking literally about animals, I think he's also intending the obvious implications into humanity. This is what the world will be like. God will 
bring peace, not, not only between bears and cows, but between people. The people under this king would live in this picture-perfect, over-the-top, absolute peace, completely transformed external and internal peace. And then he makes the greatest statement of all. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for because, here's how that peace comes to be, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All of this peace stems from one ultimate truth, one great reality. It's the knowledge of the Lord. It's knowing Him. We have peace within ourselves and and with others because we will know God. We will see Him. The knowledge of God, seeing Him truly, is what what transforms us. It's what transforms the world. Uh, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. The The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's seeing Him, beholding Him, we're transformed to be like Him. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, fullness of life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The very center of this image of Peace and joy and satisfaction and rest is knowing God, being in His presence. That's the kind of kingdom that He will bring in. The kind of kingdom that satisfies our deepest desires, the deepest longings of our hearts. It's the nostalgia that that Christmas never quite satisfies. It's the rest that, that summer break just continually falls short of fulfilling. It's that quiet calm that you only ever have glimpses of. It's that closeness and belonging and family togetherness that we wish Christmas magic should somehow produce. It's that itch that we just can never quite scratch. That's what Simeon's waiting for, hoping for. This king, this good king will come He will kill the wicked. He will wipe them from the face of the earth and he will show mercy on the poor and the needy. And he bring about this kingdom of perfect, complete peace. And it's the end of all violence and death, all pain and suffering and struggle. This this battle for existence, it just, it defines our reality. Toiling, ended. The presence of God like the waters cover the sea. That's the kingdom that this good king will bring about. Feels like almost too much to hope for, doesn't it? And so let's ask the obvious question then. Where is it? Where is it? I thought we were talking about Jesus who came at Christmas, born in a manger. He came, right? Wasn't he the promised one that we're talking about? He left. He's gone. Where's the kingdom? I don't know about you, I was watching the National Geographic channel the other day and those lions were not grazing. I look around and I don't see a lot of peace. I see cancer. I see Alzheimer's taking away my grandfather. 
I see broken marriages. I see a judicial system upside down and backwards. I see parents burying their children, friends burying friends. I see kids going to bed at night without their daddy at home. It's not what we signed up for. Every direction we turn, we see this sinful, broken world. Where's this peace? Did he fail? Did he not do what he came to do? I thought that was Christmas, right? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Where is it now? Well, that's partly true. God spoke through the prophets to tell about who this promised rescuer would be and and the kind of kingdom that he would accomplish, but he didn't always give a clear timeline. That's partly why the Jews were so confused, why they had such a, a hard time reconciling Jesus as the Messiah. Is he gonna come? As the reigning king from Isaiah 11 to make all things right, to to slay the wicked? Or is he going to come as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 and be put to death at the hands of the wicked? Which is it? Of course, we now can see looking back, it's both, but each in their own time. Of course, that's God's mercy. That's his good plan. Think about it. If he had sent Jesus first as king and judge, we would all have been wiped out. Now, first he has to come as savior and sacrifice. So he did. Born in a manger. The light came into the world, but people loved the darkness because their deeds were evil and they hated the light. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, despised and rejected a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His first coming was not as king, not as ruler and judge, but as savior and sacrifice, so that when he returned as king and judge, there would be some left. His plan has not failed. It's right on track. He's having come once as sacrifice and Savior. He's now waiting patiently, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But that day is coming. His patience will not last forever. And he will return as king, as judge, to serve this this final judgment on all who have rejected him and to bring final salvation to all who trust him and to set the world right. But we live in between those two times. Ephesians 1.10 says that in Christ, God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him on heaven and on earth. That's what we're looking forward to. That that day is coming. But where does that leave us now? It leaves us pretty close to where it left Simeon. Waiting. Eagerly anticipating the coming of the rescuer. Hopeful, but never satisfied. My prayer last week in the Connect card is that I would take time to worship through Christmas and to lead my family to do the same. Christmas is a dangerous time for me because I love it. I love it. 
I love the nostalgia of it. I love the, the memories of Christmases gone by. I love settling down on the couch after the, the chaos of decorating the tree is over and the kids are put into bed and the, the smell of the tree fills the house and the ceiling has the, the multicolored shadows of the pine needles on it. I had an eggnog in one hand and a good book in the other and that's where I found myself Tuesday night. And I so subtly, so deceptively start to think, This is it. This is what my heart longs for. I need more of this. This is peace. That sense of peace is so fragile. It's so fleeting. And it never really satisfies. I'm just setting myself up for disappointment. And as soon as I begin to put my peace in this little kingdom that I rule, then if someone challenges that, I lash out at them. The longing of our heart was not meant to be filled here. It doesn't get satisfied by Christmas, no matter how thick you lay the nostalgia on. It was meant to be fulfilled in one place, the presence of God, the peace and rest that he provides. Nothing else will do. Don't, don't let your heart settle here. It doesn't matter. The, the good things of this life are blessings from the Lord. They're, they're, they're glimmers of things to come, but, but don't think you're going to find it here. You'll spend your life searching for it. In a spouse, in children, in thrill-seeking, in booze or drugs or pornography or anything else, and you'll never find it. You'll always be left just that little bit short. We have got to set our hearts on that kingdom, that coming peace. That's what our hearts were created for. Maybe on the other hand, your problem is not getting comfortable here. You're not tempted to be distracted. You're tempted to despair. Christmas is coming. And the lies of nostalgia just aren't going to cut it this year. There's too much pain. There's too much suffering. I'm right in the thick of this. I'm nowhere near peace. And the temptation is to wonder, will there ever be peace? This world is not our home. He's preparing a city, a home for us, a place where he will dry every tear, where every pain and hardship of this life will be undone, where there will be rest for your weary soul, deep abiding peace. You long for it and God intends to fulfill it, just not here. Listen to the words of Paul, Romans 8. This is such a sweet passage. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility. He's talking about the curse. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we were saved. 
A hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's hard. We groan under the stress and the strain of this world. It's painful. We feel like we we should have peace. That There should be something more here. and, And we wait eagerly for it. Will I ever find rest? Will I ever have that peace where I can actually just breathe out and everything will be okay? Yes. Yes, trust in this king. Rest in this kingdom. You've got to set your heart on that coming kingdom. I don't know if you're aware of this, but as we gather this morning to talk about this peace and this coming king, praying together, We have brothers and sisters in China right now who have not been afforded that freedom. There's a new wave of persecution beginning technically according to their new constitution. They have freedom of religion, but their new president is undermining that hard. And Early Rain Church in Chengdu, China is a Protestant church, church much like ours, Reformed Church, and uh, there are about 500 people, and 100 of those people have been arrested, uh, including their pastor, uh, and are being held on charges of inciting subversion to the state. And uh, if you've read much for history, you know what that means. It means you can't do this Christianity thing. Uh, it's not okay. Um, there is a king <laughs> who rules over the president of China, uh, whether he likes it or not. Um, So we want to just take some time to pray for them now. Um, Pray that they would feel the nearness, the hope of the coming Christ and his return, that they would not be discouraged or afraid, um, that they would hold fast to the faith. They're they're under pressure to to pledge never to return to church. Um, And and, uh, who knows where it will go from here. Uh, Pray for their pastor. Uh, His name is Wang Yi. Uh, He is currently detained as well. Pray that God would use this and save uh, policemen and prison guards and and maybe um, President Jinping even, um, and that this would be uh, a time where God's kingdom continues uh, to grow and expand in, in the face of it.